It was the summer of 1820, and little 10-year-old Phineas was up at the crack of dawn. Phineas was going to go see the island. Phineas was going to go see his island. You see, the day Phineas was born in 1810, his grandfather gave him a deed to some property, some property in Connecticut. That property was called Ivy Island. Ten-year-old Phineas had never seen this island in Connecticut called Ivy Island, but that was all about to change. On this summer day in 1820, young Phineas was not only going to be able to see his island, he was going to be able to play on his island, have fun on his island, frolic all day in the happiest way. His parents were quick to remind him, not every child is born a landowner. Neighbors were afraid that young Phineas wouldn't play with their children because, you see, when you own an island, you feel important. When you own an island, you want to see it. Phineas hadn't seen his, but that was all about to change on this grand summer day in 1820. Phineas and his parents rode about 50 miles, horse and buggy, Finally, the horses stopped. Phineas jumped out of the carriage and began racing through a row of trees. He came to the brink of Ivy Island, his island, his very own island. And then he stopped dead in his tracks. What he saw simply broke his heart. Ivy Island was five acres of snake-infested marshland. His grandfather said it was a great gift. It was worthless. His dad said it's the best land in Connecticut. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. Can you imagine the trick that these adults played on a 10-year-old child? Young little Phineas, four words came into his heart, and he uttered these four words, four of the most hopeless words in the English language. As young Phineas looked at this five-acre swampland infested by poisonous snakes, he stood there and said these four words, but I had hoped. Can you hear the anguish in the voice of a little 10-year-old child who'd been duped and fooled by no one less than his own family? But I had hoped. We're in the third week of this sermon series on the Old Testament prophet Micah. Micah. Fierce judgment, final grace is what we're calling this sermon series. Micah, if you've been here, you remember that Micah lived toward the end of the 8th century B.C., about 720 B.C. to be more exact. And Micah, if you know anything about the great 8th century in Israel, this is when prophets started writing books. 
And earlier in the 8th century, about 760 B.C., a prophet named Amos, famous Amos, came along, and he wrote in chapter 9, verse 11 of his book, that God is going to resurrect and rebuild and restore and renew the fallen dynasty of David. That's famous Amos. After Amos came the great prince of the prophets, Isaiah. Isaiah says that God is going to restore the house of David with a child born of a virgin. That's Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah's not done talking about this child of the house and lineage of David. Isaiah says in 9, verse 5, it's a famous verse, right? Sounds like this in Hebrew, Peleo Eitz, El Gabor, Aviahad, Sar Shalom, which means wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Wow. What a prophecy. So Amos comes along, followed by Isaiah, and then we have Hosea. Hosea says in the second chapter of his book that God is going to delight in his people as a bridegroom delights in his bride. So imagine, you're the next prophet in line. You have followed the likes of famous Amos and Isaiah, the prince of the prophets, and Hosea. Wow, the people will be so renewed and restored and obedient and loving and kind and humble, right? Wrong. Dead wrong. Here are a couple of verses from the book of Micah. Remember, it's just seven chapters. So following Amos, Isaiah, Hosea, and, and, and this is what we have. They, these are the people who have listened and read these great earlier 8th century B.C. prophets. They covet fields and seize them, and houses take them away. It sounds like they've set up a payday loan business on every corner of the street, Right? They seize, right, the fields. They covet houses. They take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Can you hear the anguish in Micah's words? In the same chapter. If a man should go about and under wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. Kind of the pastor comes along. What's the title of the sermon? It's Millerton. Huh. Uh, that's the preacher for this people. Can you hear the anguish and frustration in Micah? After these people had heard famous Amos and Isaiah and Hosea. Then chapter 6, verse 12, your rich men are full of violence. That, that word violence, it sounds like this in Hebrew, kamas, kamas. That should sound familiar if you know anything about the Gaza Strip and the political party that operates in the Gaza Strip. They're called what? Kamas. It's the Arabic word. It's the Hebrew word for not just violence, but violence with bloodshed. That's what Mike is talking about. Your inhabitants speak lies. Their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. This is what people are living like after hearing Amos, Isaiah, 
and Hosea. You can almost hear Micah throughout his seven-chapter book saying those four words. But I had hoped. Sometimes life has a way of just breaking our hearts. Sometimes it's as though events, people, places are like a hammer and life just crushes us. We sink into dark places, hopeless places, despairing places. Overwhelmed with those four words, but I had hoped she would at least finish college I had hoped that the money wouldn't run out, (laughs) but I had hoped for a better prognosis from the doctor, but I had hoped that he would return, but I had hoped. (laughs) Bitter words, broken words. What we wanted didn't come. What came, we didn't want. So we're left with crushed hope, dismantled hope, no hope. And folks, if you don't have hope, you don't live. You just exist. So there are three options. First is what? Become bitter bitter. That's what happened to Phineas. This little boy, that 10-year-old boy, right, in the summer of 1820, who was duped by his parents and grandparents, that's exactly what happened to Phineas. Phineas lived the rest of his life with a chip on his shoulder. He was just bitter. He's going to take it out on people. In fact, Phineas made a living fooling people. You don't know him as Phineas. You know him as (laughs) P.T. P.T. Barnum. P.T. Barnum, famous for what? This line. There's a fool born every minute. P.T. Barnum, of course, of the Barnum and Bailey Circus. Never recovered from that time in 1820. I'm just going to stay bitter. And I'm going to take it out on people. I'll take it out on people I know. I'll take it out on people I don't know. I'll take it out on my family. I'll take it out on the general public. I'll just be bitter when my heart's broken. Well, another option is to become broken. Stay broken. Remain broken when your life caves in. Someone once asked the great author Ernest Hemingway, to write a book and a story using six words, six words. And he came up with something, six words, a whole story in six words. Here it is, for sale, baby shoes never used. That's six words, it's a story. For sale, baby shoes never used. Can you hear the hope? Baby shoes. 
My oldest daughter had baby shoes two times. And two times she had a miscarriage. Baby shoes, great hope, never used, crushed hope. Crushed hope. It's like a plate of spaghetti where life no longer makes sense. Uh, uh, Things aren't all tidy and neat. It's just like a plate of spaghetti. Everything is twisted and, and in a chaotic mass. Become broken, stay broken. Uh, Let that broken heart define the rest of your life. For sale, baby shoes, never used. There's another option. Become believing. Oh, that's tough. That's really tough when you're marked by those four words, but I had hoped, I had hoped. You may know that after the American Civil War, the College of William and Mary shut its doors. Closed forever, apparently. Had it not been for a man named Benjamin E. Wells, Benjamin Ewell looked at the campus of the College of William and Mary, and weeds were growing, doors were locked, windows were broken, uh, roofs were caved in. But you know what he did? Every morning, every morning for seven years, Benjamin Ewell went to the bell tower, the middle of campus, started ringing the bell. I ring the bell at 8 a.m. every morning for seven years for students to come. But there weren't any students. For seven years, Benjamin Ewell rang the bell for the College of William and Mary, for the professors to come and teach their classes, but there weren't any professors. The people, the local people, thought he had gone insane. I would think so too. Benjamin Ewell, though, (laughs) didn't stay bitter, didn't stay broken. He, He dared to believe. He dared to be believing. And in 1888, the College of William and Mary (laughs) was resurrected from the dead, beauty from the ashes. And as you know, the College of William and Mary is one of the foremost educational institutions now on the East Coast. Why? Benjamin Ewell. He kept ringing the bell. And that's what Micah does. Micah keeps ringing the bell. Sure, people ignored Amos and Isaiah and Hosea, but Micah says, I'm not going to get bitter, stay broke. I'm going to be believing, and this is how he ends his book. These are some of the most hopeful words in the whole Bible. There are two parts. You can kind of see that. I've highlighted the two parts by this great gospel word, Kezed in Hebrew, translated steadfast love in English. You see that? Steadfast love, steadfast love. 
And, and then right in the middle is this gospel adverb again, again. So the first part, Micah is simply restating Israel's creed from Exodus chapter 34, 6, 7, and 8. See, when you don't know what to do, stay with your creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church. That's what he's doing, the first half. He's being creedal. He's sticking to what he knows about God. And then in the second half, he's moving from the creed to God's concrete actions. And both sections highlight God's steadfast love. Steadfast love, kezid, it means God never quits. You may give up on you, but God doesn't give up on you. That's steadfast love. So let's take a look. Who is a God like you? Of course, the word Micah means who is like you. So this is a pun. This is a word play on his own name. Mika, who was like you? Who was like this God? He's talking about the incomparability of God. There's no God like this. A God who what? Pardons iniquity. Passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in never quitting on you. Come what may. God shows steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. Isn't that great? <laughs> Into the depths of the sea. It reminds me of Psalm 103, verse 12, where God says, I will remove all your transgressions as far as the east is from the west. Here, it is into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob, and here it comes again. Both halves, the creed and the concrete actions. Steadfast love to Abraham. And right in the middle, again, you've heard me over the last six years. Hebrews love to put the most important piece right in the middle. Again. Did you hear that? Again. Again. What a great adverb. Again, God will pardon. Again, God will pass over transgression. Again, he delights in steadfast love. Again, he will cast sins into the depths of the sea. Again, he will be faithful. We, sisters and brothers, we can hope. We can hope again. Some of the most hopeful words in the whole Bible. Micah's ringing the bell. Can you hear it? But Micah knows these are just words, right? These are just words. Ideas, concepts, thoughts. There's words on a page. So Micah doesn't stop there. Micah says this hope I'm talking about that you can live again, have hope again, be free again, be alive again. This hope, this hope is going to take on legs 
and feet and hands and eyes and ears and this hope will have a heart. Because you see, Micah says in chapter 5 verse 2 that there's going to be a ruler in Israel who is born in of all places this little backwater bungalow called Bethlehem. And Micah 5.2 says that this ruler has origins from ancient days, from the beginning of time. Hope, hope that Micah writes about in chapter 7, 18 through 20. Hope, you see, (laughs) is going to listen and love. He's going to heal and hear. And Micah says this hope I'm talking about has a name. He's a person. And his name is Jesus. As it would turn out, The only place in the Bible where we have these four words we're exploring, but I had hoped, but we had hoped, would come in Luke 24, 21. As a small child in the church I was going to, there was this picture in the narthex. You've probably seen this. I've seen this since I was knee-high to grasshopper. I didn't know what it meant. Uh, but, but this is Luke 24, verse 21, where these two disciples, Cleopas, and we don't know the name of the other one because Luke doesn't tell us, Cleopas and the other disciple are walking on the road to Emmaus, right? Emmaus about seven miles west of Jerusalem. And, and Luke 24, 21 says, but we had hoped, we had hoped. You see, they're so much in despair that they don't recognize Jesus. See, Jesus is just right there, and and they don't recognize Jesus. Welcome to my world. Welcome to your world. We get so overwhelmed with despair that we don't recognize Jesus. We had hoped, they say, that you were the one who would redeem Israel. Can you hear the bitterness in that? The brokenness? We had hoped. But now our hope is that we had hope, but now we're just broken that, that this Jesus was the one to restore Israel. How ironic Jesus is right there. In their brokenness, in their pain, in their questions, Jesus is right there, and they don't recognize Jesus. So what does Jesus do? Belittle them, berate them, dismiss them, Demean them, disdain them. No, 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 and no. Luke 24 goes on to say that Jesus revealed himself to them in the Holy Scriptures and in the breaking of the bread, which is the Holy Supper, the Holy Communion. Imagine that. Jesus walks with us. And he reveals himself to us in the Bible. That's what we're doing right now. He reveals himself to us in the Lord's Supper. That's where God delivers living, defiant, and life-giving hope. 
And there was a man who really needed it. Here's a painting of him, the most famous painting. His name is Charles Wesley. Maybe you know something about Charles Wesley, right? He's the founder of the Methodist Church. Charles Wesley lived in the 18th century. He was ordained as an Anglican priest, but the church of his day rejected him, rejected him so much that he said, sail for America, and he landed in the great state of Georgia. Even there, John Wesley's message was ignored, mocked, rejected. John Wesley was about to give up, really. But it was Christmas, Christmas of 1738. And so John Wesley, instead of giving in to bitterness and brokenness, John Wesley, he became believing again. And you know what? He wrote a hymn. Christmas of 1738. John Wesley wrote a hymn. And the hymn is all about defiant, nevertheless, on the other hand, hope, hope. And you know the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Glory to the Newborn King. That's what we call hope. A defiant hope, a nevertheless hope, a hope that says, I will not give in, give up, or give out. And folks, hope has a name Jesus. So we will sing with the angels. Glory to the newborn king. Let's stand and do that just now.